0: I want you to imagine something today. I want you to imagine that on this table, I have three stacks of papers. And the first stack over here to my left, uh, this will be all of the founding documents of the United States of America. And they're just piled high, high here these ancient parchments, 200 plus year old parchments of our founding documents. And then imagine next to them are stacked um, all of the speeches and the writings of our founding fathers. Quotes and speeches that they made and those words that record the thoughts and the heart of the men who founded the United States. So you have the actual documents and then you have the, the heart of the people who founded the nation. And then imagine here to the right is another stack of papers, and these papers contain the lyrics to all of our historic national hymns, the songs that we have sung as a nation over the last 250 years. And if you were to take all of those documents and to weave them together, uh, the, the founding documents, the words and speeches, the lyrics of our songs, if you put them all together together, They would harmonize to tell a story and they would celebrate what is the greatest virtue of the American people and what is the greatest virtue of our nation. And that greatest virtue that we possess and that these documents would celebrate and affirm for us is the freedom that we enjoy As a people, I think you would agree with me, our greatest virtue as a people, as a nation, is our freedom. And so, if I were to begin to pull documents from that stack on the left, I would pull the Declaration of Independence, which, as most of you know, begins in this way in Congress, July 4th, 1776. We hold these truths to be self evident that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these rights are life, do you know the second one? Say it with me. Liberty and the pursuit of happiness. A second document that I might pull would have been written about a dozen years later. It's the Constitution of the United States, and in the preamble to the Constitution, we would read, we the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, and secure the blessings of, do you know the word, liberty. And secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity to ordain and establish this Constitution of the United States. And if I were to move from that stack into that middle stack of papers where we would be reading the speeches and the writings and the, and the quotes of the founders, we would have numerous ones that would emphasize our freedoms as well. Benjamin Franklin said this, he said, freedom is not a gift that is bestowed upon us by other men, but it is a right that belongs to us by the laws of God. Patrick Henry famously said, many of you will recognize his quote, Patrick Henry said, I know not what course others may take, but as for me, would you say it, give me liberty or give me death. You see, in all of these documents, we would hear this refrain over and over again that the great virtue, the common denominator, the great inspiring reality of our nation is that we are a free people. Even a number of years later when the pledge to our flag was written, it states that we are free. It reminds us that we are free people. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible with, say it, liberty and justice for all. And even our national hymn, our great national hymn that is called America, sometimes called um, My Country Tis of Thee. But it says, My Country Tis of Thee, sweet land of liberty, of Thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside let freedom ring. Over and over again, this is the refrain. These are the themes of our documents, our songs, and our founders. And it proves what is true in the heart of our founders and of so many that followed them. It is that Americans have always been a freedom-loving people. We have always been. But you have to ask the question, how did this commitment to freedom Originate, where was it born? Because you understand that a nation originated, conceived with the idea of freedom and built upon the principles of freedom is not common in human history. It's not common in the building of societies. In fact, it's rather unique. And so what was it that inspired the founders to be so committed to building a nation That was a free nation. And the answer is quite simple. It is that these ideals, these principles of freedom, are found in the pages of God's Word. These are gospel ideals. These are Bible principles. And America is a free nation because she was founded upon the principles of the Word of God, which are the principles of freedom. In fact, I want you to write this down because I never want you to forget it. And this is going to serve as a foundation for What we're going to build upon all summer long in this new teaching study. But it's the simple fact. It is that God is the author of freedom. God is the author of freedom. And here's what I want to say to you about that. Anytime you see freedom flourishing. Anytime you see freedom being celebrated. Then you can know that is the result of the influence of God. His spirit and his word. And wherever in the world you see oppression ruling, wherever in the world you see tyranny dominating, that is evidence of the absence of the influence of God and rather the presence of the influence of darkness and even of Satan himself. Because God is a freedom lover, God is the author of freedom. And we see this all through the Bible. This is not something that's kind of a new idea. All the way back in the very beginning, God has been committed to allowing his people to live with freedom in even the simplest of ways. Did you know that the Bible says that when God created the animal kingdom, that he brought the animals by Adam and he gave Adam the freedom to name all the animals? Did you know that? That Adam gave them their names and God could have just said, well, these are the names of the animals, but he gave Adam the freedom. It's a simple thing. Maybe it's not a great big deal, but it it shows the heart of God that he wanted his creation, Adam, to have freedom in that. And in a much more profound way, in God's dealings with Adam and Eve, he gave them great freedom. This is the reason that Eve had the opportunity, and ultimately Adam as well, had the choice to make a self-determination about whether they would obey God and live with his blessing, or would they disobey God and suffer the consequences. God gave to Adam and to Eve the freedom to make their choice. And that freedom from God has continued from the Garden of Eden all the way through until today, and it shall ever continue as long as man is upon the earth. When you read of God's dealings with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, God gave them freedom to choose. Would they serve him? In fact, listen to Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse number 19 where God says to Israel, "I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing." God says, "Therefore, choose life. Now listen carefully. If you have a choice, what do you possess? You possess freedom. And God gave to Israel that freedom, that liberty to choose. Will we choose life and blessing or will we choose death and cursing? And having given them the freedom to choose, he then implores them, therefore choose life so that you and your descendants may live. Now in the same way that Adam and Eve had a choice and Israel had a choice as demonstrated by Deuteronomy 30, in the same way you and I have a choice. Let me just be very clear to say to all of you that we are free moral agents before God. He gives us the choice. We can self-determine if we will choose to follow God and obey Him and walk in His blessing. Or if we will choose to disobey God, walk in our own way, and live with the consequences that come with such a choice. God is not a puppet master. He is giving to us that choice all the time. God loves freedom. But we should understand that Satan, on the other hand, is a hellish taskmaster, And while God offers us freedom, Satan wants to bind us up. He wants to enslave us. And he does this to people all the time. Maybe you're sitting here today, and the truth of the matter is, and this is not obvious on the outside, it's not obvious by the look on your face, or it couldn't be evidenced by anything physical, but in your heart and in some sin patterns in your life, you are living as if there were chains wrapped around your body. You are enslaved to certain sin patterns. We might call them pet sins or we might call them my own personal struggle or whatever but it's these sins that satan seeks to put a hook in and to hold us in bondage sometimes those enslavements form in the way of addictions sometimes people find themselves addicted to substances you might find yourself addicted to alcohol you might be Uh, someone who says, I cannot stop drinking. I just need you to know that's not the work of God in your life. That's the work of the enemy in your life. God is moving in freedom. Satan traffics in bondage. You might be enslaved to drugs. I want you to know that is not the work of God. That is not simply the work of your flesh. That's a spiritual battle. People become enslaved to gambling. Gambling. People become addicted to pornography, whatever it might be, but these are the things that cause us to live in these satanic bindings. Sometimes Satan enslaves people to the fear of man, to tormenting thoughts, that I live forever under the torment of my own self-condemnation and my own thoughts and my own anxieties and depression, and I feel as if I'm enslaved to it all the time. Sometimes people live where they are enslaved to what people think of them. I can't live freely because what will so-and-so think? What will this person think or that person think of me? I simply want you to know that this is the work of the devil. This is what Satan does. God loves freedom. Satan is a hellish slave master. Now the good news is if you've come here today and you would say, well, you know what? There are some bondages in my life. I've got good news for you. And the good news isn't that, hey, do your best and work really hard and dig down deep and you can be free. Here's the good news rather. Jesus is our great liberator. Amen, church? Jesus is the one who sets us free. In fact, listen to what Jesus himself said about that in Luke chapter 4 in verse 8. He was quoting Isaiah 61 when he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind and to set free those who are oppressed. Good news for you. Freedom's available to you today. God loves freedom. Jesus is a liberator. You don't have to live enslaved to sin or anything else. You can be free in Jesus. Do you know how joyful I am to be able to give you that good news this morning? You can be free. Jesus said in John chapter number 8 and verse number 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so what I want you to gather this morning as I'm laying this foundation is simply to raise to you the value of freedom, the freedom that originates in the heart of God and is offered to every person who will walk in that freedom. And freedom is the theme of the book of Galatians. And this is the reason all summer long we are going to be thinking about freedom, and we're going to be studying line by line and verse by verse through the six chapters of the book of Galatians. And Here's my great hope, here's my desire, that by the end of the summer, by the time we get to August the 31st this summer, that you and I are going to be more free in Jesus than we've ever been in our lives. Far more free than we are right now and far more free than we've ever dreamt that we could be, that we're going to be more free and that we are going to be more committed to the proclamation of the message of freedom and to inviting other people to find freedom as well. And by the way, I should just say to you, and this is not the message today, but I just want to stop and and say a word about this, that freedom is in peril in our country right now. It is. I said a moment ago that Americans have always been freedom-loving people, but I just need to say that culturally, societal uh, speaking as a society, we are less freedom-loving today than we used to be. We're more willing to give up our freedoms today than we've ever been before. And it's not rocket science to figure out why. Remember, freedom originates in the heart of God and is proclaimed through his word. And when the culture moves away from God, we by default move away from loving the principles and the values of freedom. And this is the reason that we as Christian Americans need to call people in this land to freedom. That is not my message. It would be a good one, but it's not the message today. Today, I just want you to know that we are going to spend this summer working through these, these teachings on freedom in the book of Galatians. So, you have your Bibles open to Galatians chapter 1. Let me give you a couple of fundamental facts about it, just about the book as a whole. Number one, look at chapter 1, verse 1, Galatians 1.1. 1, 1. The Bible says, Paul, an apostle. Stop right there. Here's what I want you to know. First thing to know about Galatians, Paul wrote it. One of nine letters that are included in our New Testament as the books of the Pauline epistles. Now, much of our New Testament originated this way because Paul was a prolific preacher and missionary. He traveled throughout the Roman Empire. He established churches as he went. And once he would establish a church in an area, and then he would move on to a new area, he would write letters back to those churches. And those, churches that Paul, or those letters that Paul wrote back became our books of the New Testament that were penned by Paul. Many people believe that the book of Galatians is the first letter that Paul wrote to one of these churches, that it was penned somewhere around AD 48 to AD 50 because he formed this church on his very first missionary journey. Paul's the author. Second thing to note about Galatians is that the recipients, verse number two, are the churches in Galatia. Note that, not the church in Galatia, but the churches, plural, in Galatia. Galatia was a province of the Roman Empire in what is today uh, modern-day Turkey. It was right in the central part, ran north to south across the entire landmass of what is Turkey today. And In that Galatian province or that Galatian region, Paul traveled and preached and established at least four churches. These are the four churches to whom he wrote this letter back. In fact, I think we have time. Really quickly, hold your finger in Galatians. Go back to Acts 13. Would you do that? In Acts 13 and 14, you'll see the the beginning of Paul's ministry and the establishment of these churches in the region of Galatians. By the way, Acts 13 is a wonderful passage because it records the ordination of the Apostle Paul, the beginning of his preaching ministry. It was the church at Antioch that sent him out to preach. By the way, this is what churches do, right? We ordain men and women into ministry. We ordain gospel preachers who go out and and preach the gospel uh, throughout the world. I was ordained by my church many, many years ago. I couldn't do what I do without that church's ordination. They gave me permission. They affirmed God's call on my life. What happened was a bunch of old stodgy preachers got me in a room, asked me a bunch of hard questions about the Bible, and I had to answer them good enough to get their approval, and then they said to the church, okay, he knows a little bit, and the church came around, put their hands on me, and prayed for me, and said, okay, you can go preach, and here we are today, all these years later. That's a little more significant than that, but that's what happened, okay? It's the ordination. Well, Paul's ordination happens in Acts chapter number 13, and he begins immediately out of that ordination his preaching Ministry. Look, go to verse 14. Acts 13, verse 14 says, When they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia. Circle that, that city's name, Antioch. That's the first church in the Galatian region that Paul established and which would later receive the letter of the, uh, to the Galatians. He was in Antioch. If you go over to chapter 13, verse 42, uh, two, verse 44, rather, it tells you that the whole city of Antioch came out to hear the gospel. And then in verse number forty-nine, that the word of the Lord was published throughout that area. That's Antioch. That's the first church. Then, if you look at verse number fifty-two, chapter thirteen, verse fifty-two. Uh, the I'm sorry, verse fifty-one. They shook off the dust from their feet against them, and they came to Iconium. Circle Iconium. That's the second church that Paul established in this region. That's a city where Paul established the church. And then, if you go to chapter fourteen and look at verse number six. You'll see the two cities, Lystra and Derby, Lystra and Derby. that's churches three and four. So Paul went through the Galatian region on his first missionary journey. he stopped in Antioch, preached and started the church, he moved to Iconium, preached and started the church, he moved to Lystra, preached and started the church, Derby preached and started the church, and when he's going to write back to those churches, he writes them the letter that goes to all of those churches that becomes the book of. Galatians okay and so Paul is the author and these churches are the recipient now what happens you can go back to Galatians we're going to read the text in just a moment in chapter number one what happens when Paul leaves this area of Galatia and these four churches is that a problem begins to arise in the church After he leaves, some other men come in and they begin to create a problem in the church. And so Paul writes the letter back to these churches to address the problem. Galatians is a problem-solving letter. It's a letter that deals forthrightly with an issue in the church. Now, by the way, I just should stop and say this is a really good example for us. Because here's what's true. Anytime you get at least two people together, you've got at least three opinions. Amen? Amen. And when you get people together, people are broken, and people have problems. And so in every relationship, there are problems. In every marriage, there are problems. Tretchen and I celebrated our 37th wedding anniversary yesterday. I would love to tell you that it has been 37 years of absolute marital bliss with never a cross word. It wouldn't be true. We've had our struggles, of course. Because every couple has struggles. There are problems that come up in families. Every family has their issues. There's problems that arise in churches. Here's the point. When problems arise, let's follow the example of Paul and deal with it. Now, oftentimes problems come up and we don't deal with it. I will never forget a true story. Somebody came to me once. They laid out all these problems going on in their family, and they said, I just don't know what to do. And I said, have you talked about it? And they went, she looked at me like I was crazy. Talked about it? Of course we don't talk about it. So you've never had a conversation about it? No, we don't talk about things in our family. I said, well, there's your problem. (laughs) The problem you just told me is not really the problem. The bigger problem is you don't talk about the problems. We sweep it under the rug. And so often we sweep so many things under the rug, for so many years you can't walk through the living room without tripping over the stuff under the rug. Paul teaches us something here. When there's an issue, deal with it. Deal forthrightly, deal honestly with it and address and resolve the issue. So a problem arises in the churches of Galatia, Paul deals with it by writing this letter. We're gonna read it, only nine verses. Galatians 1 and verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren which are with me under the churches of Galatia, grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse six, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and who would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven should preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which, we, uh, which you have received, let him be accursed. Now I want you to write something down, and it is so obvious immediately in this, in this uh, first few lines of Paul's letter. It is that there is a problem. Write it down. It's the Galatian problem. What is it? And by the way, you can tell that there's a problem even without thinking much about the words only by paying attention to the tone in his letter. Paul's tone is unlike any other of his New Testament letters. Nine different letters Paul wrote in the New Testament. None of them sound like this. Do you understand that tone is important? When I was growing up, everybody that knew me when I was a kid called me Jimmy. Nobody called me Jim. And they would say to me, or like my mother, when she was calling me, she would say, Jimmy, come here. And if she said Jimmy, come here, I was like, okay, Mom, I'll go. But if she ever said, Jimmy, come here, I was a little more hesitant to go because I knew that I was in trouble. And I knew it not because she said different words, but because she spoke with a different tone. If she ever said to me, be James Dykes Jr., you get in here. I knew I was in trouble then. I was going the other way. The point is tone matters, and I want you to see the tone of the apostle Paul. He begins the letter like every other letter, which was typical of letters in this time, And typical of Paul's letters always, the first five verses are all salutation. They're greeting. It's a normal way of beginning a letter, stating who's writing, Paul the Apostle, stating who it's written to, the churches in Galatia, and then a greeting Grace be to you uh, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus, who gave himself, to whom be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. That's very typical. But what's untypical in this letter is that he then skips the niceties. He cuts to the chase and gets right to the problem. In every other one of Paul's letters, he does this. He has the greeting, and then he says this Every time I think of you, I thank God for you. I love you so much. I'm praying for you. You're such a blessing to me. I've heard of your faith. They're all like that, except for Galatians. And in Galatians, he's like, This is Paul to you. What's up? I mean, in verse number six, he cuts right to the problem. He says to them in verse number six, I marvel. It means I'm astonished. I I can't even believe what I'm seeing. I marvel that you are so soon removed. The word removed, don't misinterpret that as if to think that the Galatian believers were victims and had no choice in what was happening. The word to be removed means to desert. That you're a deserter would be a way to say it. That you've exchanged one gospel for another, that you've moved away from. Verse number six, I marvel that you have deserted him who called you into the grace of Christ. By the way, who is the him? Who who is it that they've deserted? Him who called you into the grace of Christ. Let me read to you verse number 15, chapter 1 and verse 15, if you need clarity about who the hymn is. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. The hymn in verse number 6 is God. I'm shocked, he says, that you have so soon, so quickly deserted God who called you by his grace. I shouldn't say to you, if you do what these Galatian people did, if you pull away from what is true, listen carefully, if you pull away from Christ, if you pull away from the service of Christ and the advancement of the gospel and the love of Jesus and the body of Christ, if you pull away, you're not deserting your friends so much. You're not deserting your family so much. You're not deserting your church so much as you are deserting God, who called you by his grace into his family. And Paul says to these Galatians, I, I can't believe that you would even do this. Now he goes on to explain why it's happening. Look at verse number seven. He says, you've been moved to another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you. Verse number seven says, there are some troublemakers who have come into the church. The word trouble means there are some who have stirred things up. It's like troubling the waters, stirring the waters, agitating the people. That's what the word trouble means. There are some who have come in and they've agitated you. We'll see it in the next week or two, but this group of troublemakers is dealt with in Acts chapter number 15. And in that passage, they are referred to, listen, as those who subvert the souls of men. You don't want to be a soul subverter, right? Because God places great value on the soul, and you don't want to be a person that God has called a soul subverter or someone who undermines the well-being of the soul of a person. Now the point is that these troublemakers have come into the church after Paul's departure and they're they're subverting the souls of the people. Next week we'll deal very clearly about what it is that they're doing, how it is that they're subverting the souls, how they're causing this trouble. But for now, suffice it to say that they are simply causing these people to move away from Christ. Now, a couple of things you need to note, and and then we'll be done. And that is that how it is that they begin to move the people away, okay? So, the first thing that they're doing, write this down, is that they, they do this by challenging Paul's authority. They're questioning the authority or the teaching of Paul. This is so clear in verse number one, where Paul begins. In the very first line of his letter, like no other letter that he's ever written, in every other letter that Paul writes, he introduces himself this way. Paul, a servant of Christ, or Paul, an apostle of Christ by the will of God. He's identifying himself. But in this chapter, in this letter, listen to what he says. Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle, that's typical. Here's what's not typical. In parentheses, he says, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but I'm an apostle By the will of God and his son Jesus, whom he raised from the dead. Obviously, Paul felt the need to to assert his authority as an apostle because it had been questioned by these troublemakers. They were saying he was not an apostle, that God had not called him to be an apostle, and that he was only an apostle because he made himself to be so. Or that other men made him to be so, but he wasn't truly an apostle who had any authority in their lives. And so Paul asserts, no, I am an an apostle by the will of God. They had accused him of trying to please men, to please the Gentiles. Listen to what he says in verse 10. We didn't read it, but look at it, verse 10. For do I now persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. So here's what's important. It is that in this verse, Paul is claiming equal apostolic authority with Peter and James and John and all of the original apostles. Now you think about this for a second. If you all with me, say amen. Don't miss this. Jesus called every one of the original 12 apostles personally. Andrew, follow me. Peter, follow me. Bartholomew, he personally called them to himself. He breathed upon them their anointing for the ministry of their apostolic ministry. He ordained them to this apostolic ministry. And now Paul, who never met Jesus Christ when he was on the earth, who never met Christ before his crucifixion or resurrection, Paul comes forward and he says, I too am an apostle because Jesus, after his resurrection, met me on the road to Damascus and he called me to be an apostle just like Peter and James and John. That's quite a claim. And you should know, by the way, that all of the original apostles affirmed Paul's apostleship. They all agreed with him that he was, in fact, an apostle. So this had been drawn into question. And Paul is asserting his authority. Not because he feels threatened, but he's asserting his authority for the good of the church. In fact, here's a principle I want you to think with me about. In fact, I want you to talk about this in your small groups this week. Some of you, many of you are going to circle up in groups this week. And I hope all of you will. If you're not in a group, go by groups Slams and get in one. Because you need to be in a circle, not just a row. But when you get in your circles, when you get in your small groups this week, I want you to talk about this principle. Just jot, jot it down and then talk about it in group. It's the principle that says, Biblical authority secures personal freedom. What do you think about it? Biblical authority secures personal freedom. We tend to think that if I have authority over me, I'm not free. But biblical authority doesn't bind me, it sets me free. Let me give you an example. God has ordained the family in this way that He has said that the husband is the head of the wife. Not more spiritual, not, not any more saved, not better than, but in terms of God's order, He has said the husband is the head of the wife. Ephesians chapter number five says this So let the wives be subject to their husbands in all things, even as the church is subject to Christ, wives should be subject to their husbands. Because as Christ is the head of the church, the husband is the head of the wife. Ephesians chapter 5. I've told you before, by the way, that I once asked Tracy, my wife, this question. I walked into the kitchen carrying my Bible. I gave her no context. She didn't know I was going to ask the question. I just opened to Ephesians 5, read those three verses. that the wives be subject to the husbands. The husband is the head of the wife. I closed my Bible and said, what do you say to that? How does that make you feel? What's your immediate gut reaction? And without hesitation, she said, freedom. Oops, I was surprised. I said, really, freedom? And she said, yeah, freedom. And I said, why freedom? And she said, because it's on you, man. If you mess up, God's going to get you. I'm free. Biblical authority produces and secures freedom. Let me give you another example. God has said that parents are to exercise authority in the lives of their children and when parents exercise authority in the lives of their children it produces an environment where there is freedom for that child to flourish in their personality and in their giftedness and in in what they how, how they develop to the glory of God they have great liberty even though they live under the authority of their parents that's a biblical design can I give you one more how about police providing moral authority in a society? That when the, when the government and law enforcement are acting in a moral way, they provide freedom to all the people because they are exercising their authority. How about this one? When pastors offer godly authority over the guidance and the shepherding and the direction of their church. Then the gospel is free to flourish and go forward. But here's the thing with all the things, that, those examples I just mentioned, Satan lies to us. Because while biblical authority secures freedom, what Satan says is the husband, the head of the wife. How misogynistic. How oppressive to women. How, how offensive to the intellect and the strength of the woman. And Satan says that if you cast off the authority of the man in the home, then the home can flourish more. But all it is is a lie to bind up that family. When we say that parental authority should be subverted or transferred to government agencies and policies and parent, parents really have limited Authority in the lives of their children, and the nanny state has more, then we end up raising a generation not in freedom but in bondage. Are y'all tracking with me? Hey, how about this one? When the culture says we don't need police exercising authority, we need to defund the police and despise the police, then, then we'll be free. But what you really are is living with chaos what about when churches function? And ours doesn't, praise God. But what about when churches function, not with an under-shepherd leading that church, but with a pastor as an employee of a congregation, instead of the shepherd God placed to lead them in the, in the ministry of the gospel, then that church locks down and ministry becomes impossible. Understand this. God has ordained authority. Even in the same breath that he loves freedom, he ordains authority so that freedom can then be enjoyed and that it can flourish. Well, they were undermining that authority. And so this was causing the people in Galatia to not be free. One last thing I need to say to you and we'll be done. We're gonna come back next week and we're gonna talk about exactly what these people were doing I, I don't want to get into it today because it's going to be an entirely different message. Today, though, what I want you to do is to feel. If I, could, if I could get into your soul, I want you to feel something in this passage. And it is the intense, furious anger of Paul. He is livid. Look at it. Verse number six. I marvel that you were so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, verse 7, which is not another. I can almost hear his voice saying it that way. Unto another gospel. And there is no other gospel, which is not another. But there are some who are troubling you. And they're preaching another gospel. The word corrupt or alter or pervert means just that, that the gospel becomes something that it's not. And Paul says there is only one gospel. And in fact, he's so emphatic about this that he says, In fact, let me just t- say this to you. If I ever come to you, Paul says, and I preach to you something other than the gospel, and then he stops, he says, No, no, not, not just me. If an angel from heaven comes down to the earth and preaches another gospel, Any man or any angel, if they preach another gospel, let them be accursed. That's strong language. Accursed, the Greek word is anathema, and it means excommunicated, excluded from God. It means to be condemned. The simplest way to say it, it means let them be damned off with their spiritual heads for eternity. That's what he's saying. If anybody comes and they preach another gospel, then let them be a I want you to feel that because here's why we need to know that. Because what we must determine as a church forever and always is that we have one message and it is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we ever preach anything else, then may we go to our grave because that one message is the message that'll save a sinner forever. He says the gospel is our only hope. So let me close. Let me close by articulating from Paul's words in this passage what is the gospel, the good news. I didn't didn't come here today, and you didn't come to church to hear me say this today, and I didn't come here to tell you that here's good news. You're good. Here's good news. Just keep on trying. Just work really hard. Just turn over a new leaf and... Be better and find 10 steps to a new you, and you're gonna be okay. That is a lie. Here's the truth you and I are sinners, and we're helpless to do anything about it. But the gospel gives us the solution. What is it? Paul tells us, look at it, first of all, verse number six. I marvel that you are so soon removed from Him that called you into the grace of Christ. Right now, here's the first point of the gospel: it is the grace of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the message of the grace of Christ. The message of the gospel is not be good. The message of the gospel is there's grace available to you. The message of the gospel isn't start over. It's there's grace available to you. The message of the gospel isn't you messed up, you're done. There's grace available to you. Where you don't know who I am or where I came from, there's grace available to you. But pastor, there's, y'all listening, there's grace available to you. But if you can only, I'm just telling you, there's grace available to you. The good news is it is the grace of Jesus Christ. Number two, second point of the gospel is that it is the grace of Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. He gave himself on the cross. He's delivered himself up to bear your sins and mine. And that when Christ died on the cross, It was God's offering of his own son, Christ's offering of his own life to pay the penalty for your sins. It is his grace to to, uh, give himself for our sins. The third part of the gospel is the grace of Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this world. This is verse number four. Who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world. The word deliver means to rescue, to snatch us away from. Can I, can I tell you something? This is not gonna be a news flash to anybody. This world is in deep trouble. It's like a car with a bunch of teenagers at the wheel. It's careening down a mountain road. There's death and devastation in the future and it's headed for trouble and, and listen, The only hope is that somebody's going to reach into that car and snatch us out. And Jesus gave himself for us that he might rescue us from this careening, chaotic crash that's getting ready to happen, and he will take us to heaven. Praise God for that hope. It's the grace of Jesus who gave himself that we could be rescued from our sin, that we could spend eternity with him in heaven, that that would happen to the glory of God forever. That's verse number 5 to whom be glory. Speaking of God, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. In heaven forever, we will be giving God glory for the work of Jesus. Nobody is going to get to heaven, reach around, pat themselves on the back and say, glory be to me. Look what I did to get here. Nobody. And everybody will be saying, God, thank you. I praise you that Jesus gave himself for my sins so that he could rescue me from that world and he could bring me to heaven. Praise God for that. You know what? That is the gospel. And if I ever preach anything else to you, let me be accursed. Because that is our message. Now, some of you here have not trusted in that. It may be that really you're considering it today. You maybe you haven't considered it before. But today, for reasons unbeknownst to you, this all makes sense to you. And there's an agreement in your heart. There's a conviction that, you know what, I am a sinner. Truth is, I am. Do wrong things. Have done plenty of wrong things. I'm a sinner. And while I might try to get a little better, I could never be good enough to go to heaven. And so my only hope for getting into heaven is is that God would just forgive me and take me there. And and yet God is just, and so he can't just ignore my sin. He has to deal with it, and he did. He dealt with it in the death of his son. And for the first time today, maybe you're considering that the death of Jesus Christ was for you, and that he did die, and he was buried, and he did rise from the dead, and that he is the Savior. And you believe, maybe like you've never believed before, but the only way you're going to heaven is if Jesus takes you there and you know that you need him.